Welcome to the 52 Greatest Chapters of the Bible. John Barnett here. Grab your uh, notebook and your Bible, and we're going to go through, as you see on the slide, 1 Corinthians 15. And the title I've given it, remember I title the chapter each day as I read through it, and then I keep one of them as kind of my final title. The Doctrine of Resurrection Changes Everything in Life. And that's truly what I came to at the end after thinking about Paul's argument in this 15th chapter. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest doctrinal treatment of resurrection in the whole Bible. It's, it's kind of like the, the primary document for everything we believe about resurrection. The, the reality of the resurrection, the, the means of resurrection, the, the byproducts, in other words, that God said there's going to be celestial and terrestrial bodies, and, and we're going to have this new creation that God has made for us in heaven, waiting us. We have a reservation to have that body. But uh, just for a moment to tell you about your journal, uh, I always remind you that you can go to our Facebook page and download these two sheets that I have written in mine, because some of you are brand new with us. I, I see that in the comments. And uh, over here, the chapters we're covering, over here, the method we use. And then, going to my 1 Corinthians 15, you write what you're finding, and uh, as you primarily what you're finding as you read the scriptures, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But uh, the slide you see is the Temple of Apollo, and uh, some of you aren't much into Greek mythology, but the whole world was into Greek mythology, the whole Roman world. And Apollo, the sun god, was the one who people went to to find out about the future. If you've ever heard of the oracle at Delphi, uh, that oracle was the mouthpiece of this god Apollo. Now, you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he tells us that behind every idol there is a demon. And if people want to know the future, then Satan would empower the demon to tell them enough things. Because remember, demons are better than the KGB, the CIA, and the Mossad put together. A demon is a super intelligent spirit being that doesn't die, that doesn't sleep, that knows every language, that can go through any structure and listen to everything. They're not stopped by any barrier and they can listen and they remember. So you talk about being able to tell the future. Uh, Satan's oracle could almost tell the future just by knowing what no one else could know, like where armies were and what they had heard their plans were as they were, you know, spying them out. So that temple of Apollo that you see there, and the reason I keep putting that there, that's sizable competition for the gospel. And of course, Greeks did not believe in resurrection. And so everything we're studying in 1 Corinthians 15 goes against the whole culture that Paul was uh, ministering to. Now remember where we are, we're in our 39th week. We're looking at the gospel and resurrection bodies. It's going to be very exciting, very motivating to me this week, studying the resurrection. Uh, next week, uh, Lord willing, we're going to be on imputation, uh, perhaps one of the greatest doctrines of salvation, the, the placing. If this is Jesus Christ, he came to me and took with him all of my sins and imputed them to his account, then he comes back and imputes to me his righteousness. So imputation is kind of like uh, 
the digital deposit to your account, like uh, that you have direct deposit, that's what imputation is, direct deposit and direct withdrawals. And so Christ directly withdrew my sin from my account and directly deposited his righteousness. Amazing. Uh, we'll look at Galatians and justification, spiritual warfare, talking about those spirit beings I just said that are everywhere listening, knowing every language, deceiving spirits. Uh, that's going to be week 42. Then, wow, Titus 2, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And then we get to Hebrews 10, uh, which talks about Christ dying for sin once and human religions. This whole method that you've just dropped in on or you've been with us for a long time, is a survey of the whole Bible. And it's uh, an active survey. That's why we have this journal with us. And if you want to know what kind of journal and what kind of Bible, and if you want to know about this study Bible I refer to, all of that's down in the description of this video on YouTube. And you can find out all about these tools and pick any that you want to use, uh, even uh, some of the, the books we used to study the Bible. But we're surveying the whole Bible in one year, and you're, you've just come to the 39th week. Uh, so that means that we're three-fourths of the way because uh, three times 13 is 39 and four times 13 is 52. So we're three-fourths of the way through the Bible of the 52 greatest chapters. But this is the key. And this is what I'm, I'm trying to encourage you to. Uh, this is kind of like the pep talk before the game. The game is you studying all week long, using your tools, going through, reading 1 Corinthians 15 each day. And as you read through the passage, writing down, see what it says, as many lessons, truths, and doctrines as you can find. When you come to a hard verse, you get your study Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible. And you look up that passage and you try and figure out uh, how he came to that conclusion, looking at all of his footnotes and cross-references. So it's an it's a integrated study. But look at this. This last part of the slide is what makes it devotional. See, this is the connection right here. All the studying is just academic until you do this. Write a prayer in which you ask the Lord... He's the author of the Word of God. He's the energizer of His Word in our lives. He sanctifies us. Remember uh, John 17, 17, we're sanctified by the truth of God, which is the, the Word of God, and it sanctifies us. This is how, as we say, Lord, I want this truth or lesson for you to unleash that in my life. And I'm actually going to show you my prayer from this week that I've written out, I type it so that you can see it. And I actually pray that as my offering to the Lord of, of gratitude for what he's done, but, but asking him to change me. Because as long as we're on this side of glory, we need to be changed every day. It reminds me when we lived uh, in the East Coast, we lived, I pastored with my wonderful wife, Bonnie, and the beginning of our little family in Rhode Island, the ocean state. Well, it's the ocean is everywhere present and salt eats anything metal. And so you are constantly wire brushing and, and scraping and repainting anything metal, uh, whether it was your mailbox or your, your equipment on the deck, you know, your, your uh, table, uh, your grill, whatever is metal 
constantly being corroded by that salt. This is the way the truth of God, the sanctifying change in our life is kind of like scraping and repainting and being more useful to the Lord every day. Next slide. Just part of our study. I want you to see all these epistles we're looking at, the order they were written. Paul's first two epistles were the Thessalonian epistles, but look where he was when he wrote them, where we are. Paul was in Corinth writing back to the city, the church that he had just come from. That was his normal pattern. He would write back after he moved on and, and answered their questions and everything. So that was early, early on, 52, 53 AD. Now in 57, Paul is uh, writing to the Corinthians. He's already been there, but when he left Corinth, he went to Ephesus and wrote back 1 Corinthians. And then he goes back to Macedonia and writes 2 Corinthians. Then Paul is writing to the Galatians, maybe from Corinth, or maybe he wrote from Antioch. We're not sure. I'll write Antioch there. Uh, then he wrote Romans from Corinth. And then he wrote Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, either from Rome or Caesarea Maritima. Uh, most scholars think Rome. So that's just the order, the chronological order of the epistles and where Paul was when he wrote them. Now, do you remember we've come, this is the outline of the whole book of 1 Corinthians. We saw that a few weeks ago in chapter 3. But look where we are. We're at the ending of, of the first epistle, the explanation of the resurrection. Now, we're, that's in chapter 15. We're not going to go over into 16, but you can. And it talks about giving to the Lord on the Lord's day and all that. But look, here's that temple of Apollo again. These are the tradesmen shops down here. And this is at Acrocorinthus. Now, you should be familiar if you've been with us the last three weeks. This was the, the temple to Aphrodite. Let's see if I can write up here. The goddess of immorality. This is a temple of the sun god Apollo. And by the way, that temple, remember, had been there five to six hundred years before Paul arrived. So this was an ancient, ancient temple. This set of workmen's, uh, the tradesmen area, was where Paul would have probably worked down below for some leather working um, business. And then they allowed the workers that didn't have a home to live upstairs, kind of in the attic. And so very likely, Paul lived somewhere here. And when he went to the church, because the, the uh, Jewish synagogue, remember, he, he ministered in the Jewish synagogue to start. And then when they were, you know, there was trouble and they were thrown out, he moved next door into uh, another place to minister. And it was up here in the city. So Paul would have seen this temple to immorality and this sun god every day. But look what the title is. The Greeks lived among temples proclaiming no resurrection. And Paul's teaching the resurrection. Do you remember in Athens when he talked about the resurrection, Acts 17? What did they do? It says they laughed him out of time. They just laughed at him. They just said, oh, that's false. And that was the opposition. The Greek culture said, live for the moment, go for the gusto. And they worshiped right up there on the highest point, sex, immorality, fornication. That was their worship to Aphrodite. She was worshiped in that way. 
Do you see how Satan twists and perverts and, and exactly goes opposite to God's plan? And yet Paul came there. As we saw last week, in the shadow of all that sin. And he said, come to Christ, who's going to sit on the Bema. Do you remember this? The Bema seat, we talked about that. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to actually spend our whole time right there. Because 2 Corinthians 5 is all about this spot. But Paul said, you're going to appear before Christ, seated on his throne. Live for him. Not for the moment, not for the gusto, not for immorality. Live for him. What a challenge Paul had, because when he worked in Corinth, and this is the archaeological, this is actually the sign right here. When you go into ancient Corinth, which is in the city of Corinth, it's still a city in Greece. Uh, when you walk in the front gate, this is what you see. And this is what it looked like in Paul's time. In fact, this uh, temple of Apollo is right there that I've shown you so many times. And you remember all these uh, uh, shops that the leather workers, it's actually down, down here, below here in this area. But uh, Paul worked for the Lord, spoke for the Lord in a city where everything pointed away from God. I hope that gives you encouragement. When we share the gospel, we're in great competition with a world where everything, everything, media and music and gaming and entertainment of all kinds and, and even the philosophy of the businesses and even the political philosophies, everything is pointing away from God. The entire educational system we live in is pointing away from God. And Paul went right in the middle of that and shared the resurrection. Well, here's my Bible, and you can look over here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And right here it is in my Bible. And this is just a plain Bible. The only thing it has are these little uh, kind of the bottom of the page notes that show Old Testament quotations or any Greek helps that might be. The publishers have also put in these little dividers like tongues were assigned to unbelievers, order in the church, the risen Christ, our hope, the last enemy destroyed. See, those are additions to help you study the Bible. But let, let me just read to you. The first four verses are vital. Moreover, brethren, now remember Paul's writing from Ephesus back with all their, their questions. I declared to you the gospel. So he said, I was there a year and a half, which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word. So that's the perseverance of the saints unless you believed in vain. Now look at verse 3. This is a very important verse. You notice I have it all underlined here. You should learn to underline in your Bible if you don't already. Uh, because then notice how your eye jumps to the things that either have little writing or in the, in the margins, or they're underlined or highlighted. See, that just is a real benefit to your study. But verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. So the salvation is Christ dying for our sins because the Scriptures say we're all sinners and the law of God reveals our sin. And he was buried. That's vital. So his, his death for sins, his burial, and his resurrection. That's what this whole chapter is about. Because many people 
have died and many people have been buried and only one rose again the third day, Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures. And then look what the chapter's about. He was seen by Peter, then by the 12, up here over 500 brethren, seen by James, and then down here is Paul's testimony. So that's the chapter. Now, you notice uh, here I've done some writing too. In verse 20, Christ is risen from the dead. He's become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Now, do you remember what happened in Matthew 27, verse 52? See, I wrote Matthew 27, 52 there. At the moment of Christ's crucifixion, there was an earthquake, and the tombs opened all over Israel, and a great number of saints, Old Testament saints, were resurrected, but didn't come out of the tombs until Christ the first fruits came out. You can read that, that we, we covered that when we were back in Matthew. Um, Look at this, then verse 23, but each one in his own order. Number one, John 20, Christ, the first fruit. Afterward, those who are Christ that is coming, that's the rapture. So see, I wrote John 20, First uh, Thessalonians 4, of course, that Matthew 27, 52 up here. And then it says, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, he must reign till he's put all under his feet. When's that? That's in Revelation 20. And then Revelation 21 and 22 starts uh, heaven as we know it. So many other uh, uh, incredible verses, of course, down here. I love 57 and 58, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So great stuff to, to underline. So back to the slide. Uh, that's my Bible. And that's what I would encourage you to be underlining in your Bible as you study. Now, my journal, now remember this little book is just a tool to capture thoughts. Even this morning, when I was reading through this again, I was still underlining, jotting, just not wanting to lose those, those reminders. See what happens when you pray. Remember before you start your Bible study, you take your Bible and you say, Lord, open my eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. That's Psalm 119, verse 18. I haven't said that for a couple of weeks. Psalm 119, verse 18 is the prayer that I pray every time I start Bible study. Why? The Lord is the author. His spirit is the illuminator and teacher that guides us into truth. And so as soon as I open this book, it's like no other book. And I ask him to open my mind to understand his truth. And then I start writing down, and this is what I wrote down. Uh, at the top of the page, what week we're on, what chapter we're covering. This was my title in this one that I typed, Resurrection, the Gospel of Life Eternal in Our Lives. Now let me go through the summary. Paul had already preached the gospel of Christ's resurrection in Athens. Remember, he's in Corinth. We see that in Acts 18. That's when Paul teaches in Corinth. He goes to Ephesus in 19. So he's been to Corinth in Acts 18. He was in Athens in Acts 17 before coming to Corinth. They laughed at him in Athens because Greeks didn't believe in resurrection. So Paul had to retrain those who lived in another Greek city called Corinth, who came out of Greek paganism. Little typo there with these strong doses of the truth. But this chapter is not just doctrinal. See, he didn't just, Paul was not a teacher that just said, that's it, there's the facts, 
and just the facts. No, look, he powerfully applied it to their lives then. He gives them four or five very strong little pokes saying, because the resurrection is true, this is how you should live. And we'll cover those in just a minute. The truth of our resurrection changes everything about our life here on earth today. That's what we're going to see soon. Jesus said, because I live, you're going to live also. And he says, you are going to live forever. And how you live your life today matters forever. It makes heaven the greatest investment of all. You know, we're living in an era with all of these... Uh, apps that are helping children, even little, you know, grade school children start investing. There are all these apps and parents are promoting them and, and they're giving them phones and teaching them to save their pennies and nickels and dimes and dollars because of retirement and it's so important to have financial security. Guess what's more important than financial security? Living with deposits going where you're not going to be for just a few decades, but where you're going to be forever. Which do you think is more important? Investing in your retirement of 10 or 20 years of retirement or 30, depending on what age you retire, if you even make it to retirement age, which is more important for those one or two or three decades or for the gazillion billion octillion decades? Which one's more important for investment? See, that's what the resurrection, that's what Paul was telling them. It was the same conflict back then live for the moment, live for my security in this life, or live for eternity. Okay, next I wrote in my journal, uh, oh, I didn't write, I clipped out a page from the MacArthur Study Bible. Now in 1 Corinthians 15 in your Bible, look at this. This is, all of you have your Bible, you can see this. This is the note that's right there in chapter 15. Central to Christian faith is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. By recording the resurrection appearances, the New Testament leaves no doubt about this event. And look at all these 11 appearances of Christ. Those are the help of a Bible study. Uh, I mean of a study Bible. See this, all the references, and you notice those are hyperlinked if you have like I do, the online, the, the app on my phone, just touching those immediately I can see it opens up a little dialog box. In each of those references, you can read the cross-reference without even leaving the page. It's just amazing, all the tools we have in our age um, that the Lord has given us. But now, here are the lessons I found. So each of these, I prayed, Psalm 119.18 said, Lord, open my eyes, had my notebook ready, starting to, to read along, and by the time I got to verse 4, I wrote, the gospel centers on Christ's work on the cross, unfolding as the scripture said it would. So the gospel is unfolded as Jesus said, I'm going toward the cross in the gospels. And then when he hung there and died in our place, Paul explains that is what the gospel is about. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That according to the scriptures is the unfolding Remember Isaiah? Do you remember way back then? That was a lot of months ago. We did Isaiah 53. Do you remember that? That's one of the unfolding of the scriptures where it said that he was going to be marred more than any man. He was going to make his grave with the wicked and the rich. 
All of those were prophecies of the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Then I get to verses five through eight. I had to put my Bible down and grab my notebook, and I wrote, Jesus was seen as the risen Savior by over 500 witnesses. Those may be all who were saved during his ministry. Have you ever thought of that? Wouldn't Jesus have wanted to check in with everybody that had believed on him and had been born again before he left and was no longer going to be walking around visible on earth? It's very possible that the total sum of all Christ's evangelistic works for three and a half years were just 500 individuals. That's amazing to me. He preached, he did miracles, he fed, he walked on water, he raised the dead, and so few believed in him. Uh, verses 9 through 11, Paul affirms humbly his unworthiness. He's, that's why God used him so much, he was humble. His blindness persecuting the church, uh, God's grace that accomplished anything. See, that's what's so important, that Paul is such an example to us that it's the grace of God that brings salvation. It's the grace of God that, that teaches us our need of salvation. Then in verses 12 to 19, Christ's resurrection is central to everything proclaimed in the gospel. Uh, then in verse 20, I already went over this with you, the first fruits, they were listed a possible order, Christ um, as the first fruits, and remember those that, that uh, rose on Resurrection Sunday with him and, and probably ascended to heaven with him because uh, they were the first fruits with him. Uh, then us were Christ that is coming, that's the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, and then of course the end, which I showed you. Um, more lessons. I found nine this week uh, in, in uh, verses 25 to 28, Jesus conquers, delivers all to the Father, and then God is all in all. I think sometimes we forget that, that within the Trinity, it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the one who, through his inc incarnation, became 100% God and 100% man. See this? This is called the hypostatic union of Christ. Uh, and you say, where did you get that word from? Right here, do you remember this little tool I talked to you about? Also described down in the, in the description of this video on YouTube, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. It's for those of you who are scholastic or scholars in mind, you wanna know all the details. This is a complete uh, synthesis of everything that all branches of Christendom have taught. The Anglican, which is the uh, Roman Catholic in England that is Episcopalian in America, Arminians, which are the Wesleyans and the Methodists, the Baptists, the dispensational like Dallas Seminary, uh, and you know, um, you know, Tim left behind LaHaye, all those people, uh, the Lutherans like Martin Luther, the Reformed, John Calvin, Presbyterians, you know, R.C. Sproul, uh, John MacArthur, by the way, that has the study Bible, is a dispensational reformed. So he's a combination of those. And then the renewal, the charismatic, and the Pentecostal. See, that's every chapter of the 60 chapters. Grudem presents the full spectrum of what all Christendom scholarship has come to as their theological conclusions. 
Now, what I'm not saying is, are all people that go to all of those denominations believers? I don't think so. Because you're not saved because you go to a church, you're saved because you have the new birth and you're born again. And many of those denominations don't teach that you need to be born again. In fact, some of those I mentioned don't even teach that you're a sinner, okay? Uh, by the way, I didn't finish that list. He also does the Roman Catholic Church pre-Vatican and post-Vatican because even within the Roman Catholic Church, there are believers in spite of the denomination or whatever church they're in. Okay, back here, Paul explains our motivation that is proven reliable and commanded, and I'm gonna go through that in the application. And then, I love this, a powerful reminder that we as humans come from dust. Remember what it said when we were way back at creation in Genesis? Out of the dust God created you, and to the dust you will return. That is a powerful reminder that believers come from God's spirit and are immortal. Our bodies come from the dust and they go back to the dust. But our spirits came from God. And when we're born again, we will live forever life in his presence. All humans will live forever. We know that. But some will live forever separated from God. And those of us that know Christ will live forever in his presence. Uh, that's what Jesus talked about in John chapter 5. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58, we have an incredible future planned by God awaiting each one of us. And in our applications, we'll talk about that. So, Paul's talking to a group of people that were brought up resurrection's faults. They've been born again. Paul's teaching them. He writes back 1 Corinthians as a letter to the church that was read to them and then hastily starting to be copied so they could get their own personal copy of that letter. And this is what he says. Now, I'm going to stay on the slide, but you go in your Bible. I want to show you this. Open in your Bible, and I have my Bible right here, to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29. And I'm going to read the verse while you look at this slide. See right here? Now, here's Paul's first point. The resurrection tells us we should continue evangelism. Now, see, verse 29 is a hard verse. That's why I want to cover it. Great, great long footnote in the MacArthur Study Bible. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? Halt, stop. What? Baptized for the dead? That's why Joseph Smith and the angel Moroni in the Book of Mormon started Mormon false doctrine of baptisms for the dead from that verse. And what you can do is you can go to Salt Lake City and be baptized for some genealogically distant relative you have who may not have been a Mormon, and if you get baptized in the temple, you will help them in eternity. Is that what this verse is saying? No. How do we know that? Because the preponderance, never does one verse unseat every other verse in the Bible that says the opposite. Obviously, we're not understanding this verse. So what Paul's saying is, why are we going out, leading people to Christ, and having them believe the same thing that those who have gone before them believe, those who are dead, and, and the saints that have already believed in Christ, but they lived their earthly life and they died. Why are we going out and recruiting more people to follow Christ if nobody is going to be resurrected? Doesn't even matter. 
It doesn't mean that you baptize someone for someone that's died. You baptize people that are alive that believe what those who have lived and died believed. See, that's the, that's the way you interpret this verse in light of all the other scripture. Long note on that you can read. But look at this. We keep sharing the gospel as believers die because we believe that they are with the Lord and we always need people to make up the body of Christ's church. So basically, it's an encouragement to evangelism. And I hope that you share the gospel. My wonderful wife, who's over there in the studio, thank you for working and serving alongside me, honey, just got back. She went for a couple of days um, to another city. She was working up there with some other believers. And when she came back, I said, honey, what was the highlight? And she said, I got to share the gospel. She said it was evening and we were coming home from our work. And she said, uh, we stopped in a store and there was just a moment where, you know, it wasn't an interruption to the clerk. And she just went right into sharing the gospel and gave him a gospel track. Look at this. Continue evangelism. Do you even carry tracks? Do you remember my little gospel track I keep over here? I have a couple of them. Let me show you. I, I keep these in my wallet. Uh, the promise of heaven, knowing God personally. Again, if you want to know more about down in the description of the video, you can see those on our website at discoverthebook.org in the facts section. Uh, there, there are names of these gospel tracks, but basically what they are is scripture and some of them have pictures of how to explain the gospel. Now, back in our John chapter 3 study we did a, a couple months ago, I actually show you how to mark your Bible with the plan of salvation called the Romans Road. But keep on sharing the gospel. Okay, look at verses 30 to 32, because this is what Paul says. He says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boastings in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. What's he talking about? If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, then let's eat, drink, and tomorrow we'll die. What's Paul saying? He endures persecution. Paul died daily meant Paul's life was regularly endangered, yet he went on. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 4 and 11. He talks about all the beatings and the stripes he got and stonings and shipwrecks. Uh, possibly when it says that, that uh, he saw the beasts at Ephesus, it, it's, he could be talking about the crowds that were trying to tear him apart. Could even have been that he was threatened with some of the gladiatorial things in, in, in the arena. But basically what Paul is saying is he regularly was endangered. Because he believed he would stand and give an account for what he did in his body, not just his mind or soul, but his body that would be resurrected. Paul knew God promised suffering now would yield glory for eternity. So endure persecution. Do you know what the scriptures say? In 2 Corinthians 4, in this, this wonderful section here, and this wonderful section here, do you know what they say? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, see there starting in verse 7, but we have this treasure in an earthen vessel, a clay pot. So it's like diamonds in a clay pot. That's what we are. Our body is a clay pot. Eternal life is like diamonds. That the excellence of power may be of God and not us. We are hard pressed on every side, verse 8, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. We're persecuted, verse 9. 
We're caring about in the body the dying of Christ, verse 10. Look at this, verse 11. For we who live are always delivered to death. This, see on the slide, this enduring persecution. That Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. What he's saying is, if, if this is a clay pot and I crack it and it starts breaking, you'll see the contents showing out. Like if, if it was full of diamonds, the diamonds would start trickling out. Do you know what Paul is saying? He's saying the more I suffer, the more I'm persecuted, the more I'm endangered, the more Christ shines out of my life. Lesson number two, endure persecution. Why? Because of the resurrection. Why? Because we're going to give an account before Christ. That's next week. And Christ rewards, as it says here, he rewards those who suffer for his name's sake. Resist sin. Let's go to verse 33 of chapter 15. So back up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 says this. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Boy, that says, those of you listening, and I see the YouTube statistics, you're 69% men. Uh, half of you are what we would call, you know, 20-ish and down. And the other half are above 20, but we're all men. Uh, the 70% of us, watch out who you hang around with. Ladies, the same for you. One third of you that are ladies. Jesus said, evil company corrupts good habits through the Apostle Paul. That's what Psalm 1 is about. Don't walk, stand, or sit with the ungodly just to have fun because it'll corrupt you. Go there intentionally to be around lost people, to share the gospel, to, to radiate Christ, to speak the gospel. But you know what? You speak it a few times, they won't want you back. That's the danger. So many Christians aren't, they're secret agents. They don't tell anybody they're a Christian because if they did, they wouldn't be welcome. So be careful. But then look at verse 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. Resist sin. See, sin keeps us from wanting to read the Bible and sin keeps us from speaking the gospel. When we are guilty and feel far from God and cold and distant and, and the Bible just is not interesting at all to us, how are we going to share the gospel with anyone? That's why Paul says, awake to righteousness and stop sinning. There's so many lost people around us. Okay, look at this. We're going to give an account to God for what we did with these bodies that are his temple. That's next week in 2 Corinthians 5, is giving the count. But turn to 2 Corinthians 6. Again, I could say you probably know this, but let me read it to you. 6.14 of 2 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That means don't date unbelievers too. Because you probably will never marry anybody you don't date, so don't date unbelievers. Because if you do, you'll end up marrying them. And the Bible says, verse 14, don't yoke your life to an unbeliever. Why? For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? An unsaved person is lawless and dark. They might be cute, but they're eternally separated from God till they get saved. And it's very hard to do uh, dating evangelism 
And it's even harder when you're married. So a word to the wise. But look at this. What part, verse 15, 2 Corinthians 6, has Christ with Belial? You say, what's that? Christ is in us. Unsaved people are of their father, the devil. So we're uniting someone that's a child of Satan to a child of God. What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now look at this, verse 17. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Now look at this. Can you see in my Bible, do you see the orange? Those are imperatives, commands. I highlight those with an orange marker. Come out is, an, is a command in verse 17. Be separate is a command. Do not touch is a command. Do not touch what is unclean. I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughter, says the Lord Almighty. Now, in my Bible, if you look, it's a quotation. Down here at the bottom, there's a footnote from Isaiah that tells us that's uh, something that was quoted from the Old Testament by Paul. But then look at chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. You see this passage right there on the slide? We are commanded by God to separate from sin, to purge ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. And look, it continues in Ephesians 5. God says, have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness. So because our bodies will be resurrected, we must look up and get rid of any filth, as 1 Thessalonians 5 says in Ephesians 5. What does all that come to? The third implication of the resurrection. The first one, continue sharing the gospel. The second one, endure persecution. The third one, resist sin. Why? Because what we do in our body, we're going to give an account to God for. And that's what he wants us to remember. Two more implications before we're done. Anticipate heaven. Look at verse 35 of... of Go back in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised up? In what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Now look, Paul starts teaching about the resurrection using things everyone knew about. Planting crops, seeds, corn and wheat and, and garden vegetables. Look at this. Seeds burst into indescribably greater forms and functions. Now, for just a second, let me show you this. I just got a picture of sunflower seeds and the sunflower. God can turn black and white striped seeds into that. Isn't that amazing how something so not beautiful? Sunflower seeds aren't really beautiful. They are fun to eat and spit out the hull, but they're not beautiful. Look at this. This one's even better. Look what God can do with bulbs. These, look at all these different dark, black, you know, these big, brown, pale things. Look what God can do with bulbs. Color and variety beyond compare. Okay, back here. As much flesh as humans and animals are different, that's what he says in verse 39, so the coming body we will get is different but not the same body reconstituted. Now, the Bible doesn't say that God's going to put together all the little pieces of our body that have decayed and are in the dust of the earth in the cemetery. He's going to put them all back together. It doesn't say that. 
it says we're going to be transformed into a celestial body. Now look at this. They will be like our bodies. We're going to recognize one another, but they're not the same bodies reconstituted. Why? Because he said there are terrestrial bodies in this passage, earthly, made of dust, and there are celestial bodies that are not made of dust. They're, they're transformed into a heavenly, completely different body. Just as our earthly bodies, remember terrestrial, are amazingly built and functional. I mean, the Olympics uh, from a few months ago, to see all the things human bodies can do. The wonders of our coming heavenly celestial bodies are impossible for us to conceive of. Now, just to help us, do you remember in the resurrection accounts in John chapter 20, Christ's resurrection body gives us some clues. Think back about what happened with the fearful disciples behind the closed doors. He was unrestrained by distance. He could show up along the road with those going to Emmaus. He could show up up in Galilee. He could show up in Jerusalem. Remember what 1 Corinthians 15 says? He's going to visit those 500 brethren. He's all over the place. He was unrestrained by distance. Did you know no one ever saw him? He just would appear here. I mean, they never saw him traveling other than the road to Emmaus. How did he get up to Galilee? No one saw him get up there. How did he get in all the places he went? Something happened. He's unrestrained by distance. Look at this. He walked through closed, locked, thick wooden doors, stone walls. Houses in Jerusalem were made of stone. He wasn't stopped by physical barriers. Yet, he still had a body. Look at this. He could be seen. He could be touched. Remember what 1 John says? He says, That which we have seen and looked upon our hands have handled the word of life. For the life was manifest and we have seen him. John says, I, I saw him. Do you remember Thomas plunged his hand, touched the nail prints in his hands and the wound in his side? He was still touchable. He could eat. He could talk. You could see him but he could walk through solid objects and he could go vast distances, kind of like unbelievable. It's beyond anything we can do, right? He was like spiritual beings are, where angels can do that, only he had a physical body. That's what glorification is about and it's present right now is our hope, see? So anticipate heaven, do you remember? This is Paul applying the resurrection. He says, share the gospel, endure persecution, flee sin, anticipate heaven. Look at this, and live in victory. We are in Christ's resurrection, and we now have victory or triumph. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 2. Over sin, over death, and over the law. I just got a note. Um, I, don't, I don't know how quite it got to me. I think it went through our website at the info uh, email address. But this young man said, I'm, I am so defeated. I'm so, I feel unsaved every day. I'm plagued by sin and temptation and horrible habits. He went on and on and on. And he said, what, what would you recommend? <laughs> I would recommend the resurrection. Number one, Believe the gospel and keep sharing it. Number two, suffer for Christ and, and speak to him. Whoop. Uh, number three, resist sin. And I would especially say, 
look at these passages that we read today and believe them and, and apply them in your life. Number four, start anticipating heaven. Did you know that what overwhelms the, the temptation, the lust of the flesh on earth is setting your affection? Here's, I'll write it down, Colossians 3. See, these are great verses to memorize. One and two, set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. Why? Because through Christ's resurrection, we now have victory over sin. Do you want to have the greatest assurance of your salvation? Say, Lord Jesus, I'm asking you, Help me to say no to sin. And you know what? Get up and flee whatever the temptation is. Now, I have uh, taped in my Bible right here in the back this, uh, let me get to it. You won't be able to see it very well. Sorry. Whoop. Stuff's falling out. It's right here. I'll write it. It's called Anthem. Just type A-N-T-H-E-M. Type that in Google, and then John Piper. And it's his acronym, A-N-T-H-E-M. Those six letters are his six action steps to apply Christ's victory over sin and death. And you, you know what he says? He says that every time you call in the name of the Lord and ask him to set you free, to help you live in victory and triumph, he always is there. And that's the greatest assurance. And I can say that in my own life, that I can say no to sin. Even the most uh, debilitating temptations, even the sins that so easily beset us, as it says in, in Hebrews 12, Jesus always makes an open door. Next time you see an exit sign, you know, one of those squares, E-X-I-T in red that, that you can see in the dark, you know, kind of like in a theater or in public buildings or anywhere, Think of Jesus Christ himself waving, you know, a glowing exit and pointing to the way out from whatever sin you're facing. That's what Jesus is ever living to do for us right now. He wants us to live in victory. Remember, God can turn those black and white striped seeds into sunflowers. God can take those multicolored, shriveled bulbs and make them into variety beyond compare. And look at this. And those are just lowly flowers. Just think what he has planned for you and for me. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. That's what Paul was teaching those people living in the shadow of Apollo, the sun god, and Aphrodite, the god of immorality. He said... I have great plans for you. Keep sharing the gospel. Suffer persecution. Sh tell people you're a Christian and share the gospel and they won't want you around. Resist sin. Anticipate heaven. And live in victory. That's, that's the application of this chapter. Well, after all that, I wrote this prayer. And so this is what, remember the devotional part. You get all those truths but then you apply them. And so I'll read you what I wrote. Lord, I believe that Jesus came and lived, died, and rose, just like your word says. You died for my sins. You were buried with my sins forever taken away. You rose so that I could be purchased from the slave market of sin and raised to sit in heaven with you. Thank you for my celestial body waiting for your coming and my transformation. 
I also, like Paul, am unworthy to serve you, but want to each day. Thanks for such an indescribable future. I choose to labor for you today, knowing it will last forever and glorify you. Amen. Do you know why I love looking at flowers? Because 1 Corinthians 15 reminds me that seeds that look dead and kind of not pretty at all burst into something so indescribably beautiful. Jesus Christ said, My life here on earth, resisting sin, living in victory, enduring persecution, sharing the gospel, is hard and like a little seed. But when I deposit that seed and die to myself and live for Christ, in eternity is going to be the indescribable delight. Before we go, your two final challenges I give every week. Find someone that you can tell them, I'm studying through the scriptures in one year, and I need someone to share my findings with. Can I meet with you and share it with you and, and my prayer? And, and would you help me with this assignment? You know what you'll do? You'll start a small group study, and you'll start serving the Lord and obeying the Lord by doing that, and you will start encouraging someone else, and in the process, you'll be more encouraged than you ever were. My friend that wrote me that note that I just told you about that's living in such despair and defeat, if he just found someone and started reiterating these truths to him and said, would you pray for me, his life would be transformed. See, Satan wants us to be alone. He wants us to isolate ourselves. He wants us to be in front of that screen. He wants us to be detached. And God says, no, I want you connected. I want you living life together with other believers. I want you struggling together, seeking Christ together, praying for one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, sharing your verses, praying for and with and about one another. Number two, pray for us. We're actually recording this before we fly out. And so it, this uh, week, we are supposed to be landing in Europe for 70 days of teaching on site in the in European classrooms that we're going to be training the next generation. That's our card. Pray for us. Thank you, all of you that already do. Thank you so much for being our small group. Thank you that I can share my application prayer with you and know that you're holding the ropes and praying for us. And when we get together next week, Lord willing, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5 and talking about what it means to stand in front of the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Till then, God bless you. Have a great week in 1 Corinthians 15. I hope the Lord blesses your study richly. Mm -hmm.